It is intimidating, like it's it's in a dark room. It felt like there were shining bright lights in my eyes, so it's like the 10 or 15 interviewers were all these silhouettes, like a classic interrogation scene from a movie. And I sit down, and I've been, you know, been thinking about answers and practicing and all this, but I'm, I'm nervous. And the first question is, Michael, you've done a, a BA in literature, you've done a law degree, now you're proposing to do a, a degree in politics at Oxford. What's wrong? Can't you make up your mind? That's a pretty punchy first question. And I had, hadn't thought of an answer to that. <laughs> so I said, well, yes and no. That made everybody laugh because I had accidentally made a joke. And I didn't realize I was making a joke, but I realized I had made a joke when everybody laughed. And that made all the difference because now I could relax and they could relax and I could be more myself. I could feel the shift in the room when that happened. And I could feel you know, I could feel my own buttocks unclenching. <laughs> because, you know, you show up and you're, you're in the classic fight or flight mode. Your shoulders are up, you're breathing shallowy. You're, you're, it's, a, it's a stressful situation and your body is responding like that. I had an inkling that I was either going to win the Rhodes Scholarship or I was going to come at distant last because you know, everybody had shown up, the eight other people who were going for it, they were all wearing blue suits and white shirts and pearls or red ties or whatever. And I had long blonde hair, I had earrings, I had a purple suit, I had a pink tie-dye tie. I was kind of going, I'm the weird outlier and you're either going to make a bet on the outsider or you're not. But if I'm trying to compete on the same grounds everybody else is on, I'm definitely not going to win this. But here's, here's my big play in all of this. And that kind of clarity around amplifying the best of who I am rather than trying to mix it with everybody else. And that moment of shifting the energy in the room was what I think allowed me to win the Rhodes Scholarship. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. As my regular listeners will know, it's my great pleasure to invite some of the world's leading thinkers to the podcast to explore their unlock moment and muse on the insights and connections that make us human, that give us purpose, and that make us feel fulfilled in work and in life. Today's guest is one of the very top coaches in the world. Michael Bungestania grew up in Australia, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and now lives in Toronto. His work centres around coaching and curiosity the challenges of change at an individual and organisational level, and how to stay focused on work that matters. Just a couple of months ago, Michael was awarded the prestigious Thinkers 50 Marshall Goldsmith Award for Coaching and Mentoring at a gala dinner considered the Oscars of Management Thinking. 
His 2016 book, The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, has sold more than a million copies and has been translated into 20 languages, the best-selling book on coaching this century. His TEDx talk, Tame Your Advice Monster, has been viewed well over a million times. He's also written books, including The Advice Trap, How to Begin, and Do More Great Work. His most recent book is entitled How to Work with Almost Anyone, Five Questions for Building the Best Possible Relationships. It's been a tough year in 2023, and a lot of the people I'm working with at the moment are figuring out how they can work on building stronger relationships at work and in life. For all that AI might be taking over, one thing I'm sure of is that personal and professional success in 2024 is going to be built on people and conversations. I'm looking forward to hearing Michael's take on the power of a curious mindset. And of course, I'm looking forward to indulging my own curiosity in discovering more about the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity that shaped his own life's path. Michael Bungay-Stenia, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Oh, thank you. That's a really nice introduction. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. So today, you're a best-selling author, a speaker, a teacher, and a world-leading <laughs> coach. But where would we need to start in your story to really understand the person you are today? Hmm. Well... That's a, such a good question. And you could almost start anywhere. I mean, you could just stick a pin in it. And, you know, one of the sayings I love is inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. And so you've got all of this stuff flowing into becoming the person you are today. But um, there have been a couple of moments where I've kind of leapt forward into a new world or a new space or doors have opened up that, that haven't kind of key, key crossword moments. So I would say that the place to start in many ways is a moment of being, <laughs> well, it's like this, this is a moment that takes three years. <laughs> so it, it, it was the moment of winning the Rhodes Scholarship. And there were two moments, three moments that made all the difference for that. The first was when I first applied to, you know, throw my hat in the ring to become a Rhodes Scholar. And was told everybody applies, everybody gets a first interview, then they get down to a short list, and then there's a, a, a final round. So I applied, and I didn't even get an interview. <laughs> even though they said everybody gets an interview, I didn't get an interview. <laughs> I was like, man, how bad do I suck? And the key moment, I think, was deciding to take another shot at it. Because it would have been easy enough to kind of go, well, you know, clearly I'm not the right person and this isn't the right scholarship and, you know, the grapes were going to be sour anyway, so I'll just walk away from that. And so a moment of deciding not to give up but to take another crack at it and try and do it better the second time was significant. The next moment, this is two years on when I'm now, I've got an interview and in fact I've been invited to a a dinner in Australia's Parliament House. Very, it's like the House of Lords in, in the UK. And we're having this posh meal. We're all trying to impress the, the 15 or so interviewers. So there's a whole, it's, it's a very performative moment. <laughs> and I'm looking around going, man, this is great that I made the shortlist, but I am totally out of my class here. These are all people who are smarter and better and faster and all of that than me. So I thought to myself, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll, I'll nick a teaspoon from the Parliament House as a memento. So like, when, you know, when I'm a 55-year-old man like I am now, I can say, this is the teaspoon from Australian Parliament House. You know, I could have, should have, would have been a Rhodes Scholar, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I actually forgot to pocket the teaspoon. And that turned out <laughs> to be a good thing because leaving 
you actually walk through metal detectors um, <laughs> in the bottom of the house. And that would have scuppered a, a whole bunch of things if I'd been caught nicking things from Parliament House. And then the other moment in this process that made a difference was, um, you know, it came my moment, I'm summoned into the interview room. It is intimidating, like it's, it's in a dark room. It felt like there were shining bright lights in my eyes, so it's like the 10 or 15 interviewers were all these silhouettes, like a classic <laughs> you know, interrogation scene from a movie. And I sit down, and I've been, you know, been thinking about answers and practicing and all this, but I'm, I'm nervous. And the first question is, Michael, you've done a, a BA in literature, you've done a law degree, now you're proposing to do a, a degree in politics at Oxford, what's wrong? Can't you make up your mind? That's a pretty punchy first question. And I had, hadn't thought of an answer to that. <laughs> so um, I said, well, yes and no. And that made everybody laugh because I had accidentally made a joke. <laughs> and I didn't realize I was making a joke, but I realized I had made a joke when I when everybody laughed and that made all the difference because now I could relax and they could relax and I could be more myself and I obviously did well enough or I was different enough in that conversation to then get awarded the scholarship which then got me to Oxford which is where I met my wife where it also stopped me becoming a lawyer and so really it was this significant moment in terms of moving me from my life in Australia and however that would have panned out, to getting me to England and launching me into a, a, di a different way of living. And in that moment when you suddenly realised you just made a joke and you could relax, how, <laughs> how conscious were you of that in that moment? I was, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to make all the difference, but I could feel the shift in the room when that happened. And I could feel you know, I could feel my own buttocks unclenching <laughs> because, you know, you show up and you're, you're in the classic fight or flight mode. Your shoulders are up. You're, not, you're breathing shallowy. You're, you're, it's, a, it's a stressful situation and your body is responding like that. And, you know, what I know now, I, I didn't know then, but through the work I do is I'm, your body leads your brain. If you want mm -hmm. to think better, you manage your body and that allows your brain to kind of go, oh, okay, this is the situation. This is how I can operate. Um, and so with my body relaxing and me going, oh, the threat, the threat's gone from high to low, that allowed me to be smarter and funnier and more astute and, and more my best self in terms of that interview moment. Now, I knew, I had an inkling that I was either going to come I was either going to win the Rhodes Scholarship or I was going to come a distant last because you know, everybody had shown up and everybody, you know, the eight other people who were going for it, they were all wearing blue suits and white shirts and, you know, pearls or red ties or whatever. And I had long blonde hair. I had earrings. I had a purple suit. I had a pink tie-dye tie. I was kind of going, I'm the weird outlier. And you're either going to make a bet on the outsider or, or you're not. But if I'm trying to compete on the same grounds you're, where everybody else is on, I'm definitely not going to win this. I managed not to steal a teaspoon, but here's, here's my big play in all of this. And that kind of clarity around my, amplifying the best of who I am rather than trying to mix it with everybody else. And that moment of shifting the energy in the room was what I think um, uh, allowed me to win the Rhodes Scholarship. The two things that I hear, one is, a beautiful articulation of, of 
success is a combination of luck and judgment. And, and luck here was forgetting to be dishonest and, and assume the <laughs> yeah. teaspoon. And the judgment part is, is, you know, a moment that allowed you to be yourself. And you said, you know, I came across as smarter and funnier, but actually you came across as you and right. that's, that's who you were. And I think that, you know, I, I'm talking to people all the time, I'm sure you are too, where where everybody is overwhelmed by the, this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what people are expecting right. me to be. Whether they are, exactly. you know, a middle manager or a scene leader or, or not in a work contest at all, you're just overwhelmed by this expectation of other people. And at some point, yeah. you know, the point that you think that you've definitely lost it and you just go, well, I may as well just enjoy the rest of this 30-minute conversation. <laughs> right. You know, I... I've never told this story in this podcast, but when I took my driving test um, at the age of about 17, 18, the first thing I did was hit the curb. And I nice. was certain that I failed. Um, and so the mm. rest of it was just like, I've just, I've failed, I failed. And, and, <laughs> and I didn't think about driving. Right. And my driving instructor also was sure I was going to fail, actually. Um, and then at the end, <laughs> the, the test examiner turned around to me and said, you've passed. <laughs> and I got out of the car and my driving instructor came up and she said, I'm so sorry. Because she was so convinced that I was going to fail. And I said, actually, I passed. She was blown away. Um, <laughs> but I think I, 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 I always looked back to my driving test and went, I probably wouldn't have passed if I hadn't hit the curb at the beginning and convinced nice. myself that I was yeah. going to fail. How interesting. How uh, interesting. For, me, for me, it's um, the lesson that I, I see now is you figure out how to commit to the process as best you can and you let go of the outcome as best you can. And it's, mm. it's you know, much easier to say in a snappy way on a, on a podcast than it is to do in real life. But, you know, it's just clear that your outcome is determined by a whole bunch of random stuff. Like the Coaching Habit book as an example. You know, it sold a million and 1.2 million copies or something. Mm. And... I just, you just can't take credit for that. <laughs> you know, there's magic fairy dust um, sprinkled on that book that, that has allowed it to kind of break free of the gravity that normally pulls most books down and, and mm. to keep selling and be, you know, an evergreen book, you know, even seven years after its release. Um, and I committed to a process of getting that book written and, and out into the world that took three years of really dedicated, really focused work where I was like, I am just doing all I can to give this book the best chance of becoming a classic, which is the goal I set myself. I didn't have a sales goal because it, it just occurred to me, nobody knows how many books people sell. It's, a, it's just a made up number. But I thought, you know, if I could get this book to have a thousand reviews on Amazon, I think it would have a chance. And if I could get this book to be one of the three books that is always mentioned when people say, what's a good book on coaching? Mm -hmm. That's my goal. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I did lots of podcasts. I did lots of other things to kind of get people to notice and know the book. And um, I committed to the process and it really worked. Now I've done that similar stuff for some of my other books and it hasn't really worked. I mean, it's worked a little bit, but you know, none of my other books have come close to selling what the coaching habit um, hasn't I've written eight or nine books? So I'm like, I've got, had one really big hit, two reasonable hits, you know, two books, other books that have sold probably a hundred thousand copies or thereabouts mm. and five books that have not really mm. sold a whole bunch, but mm. you commit to a process, you do your best and then you go, Hey, I'm winning because I'm doing work. I love in the style I love. I'm committed to as best I can and the cards fall where they may. 
Mm. And it reminds me of the thing that Marshall Goldsmith always says about the question you should ask is not, did I achieve the goal? It's, did I do my best to achieve the goal? And focus yeah. on the part that is within your control. Um, exactly. I posted many videos to my YouTube channel, uh, and one of them went viral. None of them are any podcasts or coaching-related content. Uh, it's a video of some fish that millions of people have viewed, mainly in India and Bangladesh. <laughs> and um, I've, I've earned, I think, 50 pounds, something like 50 pounds in advertising Ooh. revenue from the millions of views because it's in the wrong part of the world for the, for the, for the high yeah. advertising revenue. And I'm sitting there going, I'm still quite proud that one of my, one of my fish yeah. videos went viral, but it went viral four years after I posted it. Uh, and it's just <laughs> one of those things that you, ne you never quite know. So, so you focus on the bit that's in your control. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I wrote down here, which is very interesting as you, as you were talking through, was that question that they asked you in your Rhodes Scholar interview. You've done this and you've done this and you've done this. Can't you decide? Which yeah. has an implied you should have decided in it. Yeah, exactly. When you look back now, what do you think of that question, can't you decide, to a, to a young person setting out in their future career? Well, you know, I don't have children of my own, so I don't really have a whole lot of expertise of guiding young people. I do have five nieces and nephews, and they're actually, you know, old, you know, at the end of being teenagers, and uh, a number of them are kind of in their early 20s. I generally hold this perspective, and I kind of stole this really from a guy called uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V, who I think is really articulate about it, which is like, you should spend your 20s having adventures, <laughs> trying stuff out, collecting failures, collecting stories, collecting scars, collecting triumphs. You know, I've got two nieces, and uh, they're about the same age um, from, you know, from children of two different brothers. And they're, they're both, they're kind of hitting their 20s in a different way. One of them is traveling, doing crazy things, doing yoga training in India, working with an artist in South Korea, working on, um, in Aboriginal communities in the middle of Australia. She's really kind of like exploring the edges of, of what's possible. And the other one is still living at home, going to the local university in a retail job, still hanging out with her friends from high school. And, you know, it's the 20s, so you can do what you want. You can find your way. But I kind of wish the second one was having a little bit more of what the first one is getting, which is like just, you know, A, your brain hasn't formed yet. You know, you've got another five years till your brain, your, your brain kind of gets locked and loaded. Secondly, you know, in your 20s, you've got so little to lose, you know, you, so your ability to risk, and if it all goes haywire, you're typically losing some time and you're not typically losing a whole lot of, of money and you're certainly not losing a whole lot of reputation because nobody cares. I mean, that's actually true for pretty much all of us. Nobody really cares. So I, I get why they asked me the question because, you know, as a Rhodes Scholar, there's this, the way the, the scholarship talks about it is we're fighting the world's fight. That's kind of the mission or the purpose of, of the Rhodes Scholarship. And you can, you know, you can dance around that because, you know, it has a whiff of the kind of white saviorhood <laughs> built into all of that. But this idea is the, the deeper truth behind that, which is um, how do you give more to the world than you take, which I think is a more powerful expression of that, which is like, how are you of service? Um, to whatever part of the world you choose to serve. You, you can see that like the Rhodes Scholarship is a really 
high status thing to win. It, once you say I'm a Rhodes Scholar, you don't really need to say much else in, in certain circles because they're like, oh, we're assuming that you must be brilliant and this, that, and the other. And clearly that's not entirely true, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, and so they're like, we want to make sure that this gets awarded to a person who, who has a sense of, of purpose. And, mm. and, but maybe they, they sensed an, a nascent sense of purpose, even though I wasn't quite clear on, on what the direction was. Mm. And tell me a bit about the adventures. I mean, you, I think you have some, some really interesting stories about things that you've done in your career before you came to you know, the hats you wear now. I yeah. read something about you being involved in stuffed crust pizzas. I'd love to hear more <laughs> about it. <laughs> well, it's not that interesting a story, but you know, when I finished um, when I finished university, and so I did a BA and a law degree in Australia in literature, and then when I got to Oxford, actually I didn't do politics. I ended up doing a master's degree in modern literature. Thank goodness, it was a much better fit for what I'm actually interested in. Mm. So writing about James Joyce and Yeats and. Uh, a British writer called Angela Carter, who had her moment in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, and so I'm now 24 or 25 or 26, and I'm like, I still have no idea <laughs> what, I have no idea what the job is that I could do. I know it's not going to be a lawyer. Um, and, you know, I know it's not going to be working at McKinsey, but I'm not quite sure what it is. And I just found, stumbled into this company, uh, which was an innovation company. This is before innovation was a thing. It's kind of become a codified thing, but they mm. were really one of the first companies that said, this is what we do. Mm. We help organizations do innovation. And uh, most of the work was in FMCG, as they call it in the UK, so fast-moving consumer goods. In other words, just the stuff that you buy uh, in grocery stores. So our clients were often people who made made things like soups and and alcohol and some other bits and pieces as well. And it was this job that was really great for me, certainly at the start, because they were very much the found the two founders were very much uh whatever we're innovative, man. So let's not do business as usual. So for somebody who had long blonde hair, earrings, made their own clothes, didn't really like to conform that much. It was a really good cultural fit. But you know, also, you know, I made a small contribution to helping invent stuffed crust pizza. I helped contribute inventing um, a, a single malt whiskey made by Diageo that's been called the worst single malt whiskey ever invented. And it got to a point, actually, the reason I left was I'm like, this is fun, but I don't want my legacy to be the worst single malt whiskey ever invented or and or you know, a small contribution to stuffed crust pizza. That doesn't feel like a good use of my life. So uh, that's what helped me move on on from there. I, I think you're underplaying the, the societal impact of the stuffed crust pizza, but, but I, <laughs> I appreciate I'm trying that. to because I, cause I'm like, I'm not that proud of the societal impact of the stuffed crust pizza because it's like, you know, because it's, it's in one word, it's called, the word is cholesterol. Well, yeah, we did have one the other day, so I, I didn't realize the connection until now, but but thank you. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Um, yeah. So I'd, I'd love to dig into to this theme of purpose, because in these conversations with people over over now quite a long time, I've been I've been doing this podcast. I didn't I didn't know this when I started the Unlock Moment. I was just curious about that moment. And I'd had one or two of them in my time. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk to people about their own. But often yeah. what I found was there is this kind of there's this lens when you when you think about 
the moment that people choose to talk about that they remember where they were, who they were with and all of that, there, there is a sort of almost like an echo or, or an aura of the purpose that talks to why they do what they do today. And it's a little bit different, I find, from sometimes what people write when they're in a workshop and they're going, I'm writing my purpose statement. When you, when you mm. talk about a story from your past that's really meaningful, sometimes people talk about you know, being 22. Sometimes people talk about being 12. Sometimes people have talked yes. about being four or six. I know you wrote a book called How to Begin. What's yeah. your take on you know, th- those earliest signs of an underlying sense of purpose? I do think that well, you know, what, what you're reminding me of, I could have, I could have said that this was one of my, I, another one of those moments that affected me was when I was 18. And so I'm, up, I'm my first year at university in Australia. I, I was doing two things that made a difference for me. One is I, I volunteered at a youth crisis telephone hotline, young people ringing up, distressed, suicidal, and learning how to be present and ask questions and give less advice or stuff that things that you see playing through now. Um, I also took my first kind of self-help development course. I can't even remember how I found this, but it was called how to be more spontaneous. (laughs) And oh my goodness, I got so much I was, I was mocked mercilessly by my friends for doing a course called how to, how to be more spontaneous. And I'm like, yeah, as the, as the man I am now, I'm like, you could do, you could market this differently and have more success. <laughs> but it, part of what you did is you drew a life map, you know, you got crayons and you're like, you drew the peaks and the troughs of a life. And you're like, what is this telling me about, about who I am? I do think there's something really powerful about going back and noticing the peak moments in your life. Um, they don't have to be unlock moments. You know, I, at least the way I interpret unlock moment is it kind of, it, it, it opens a door to another path that might not have been there before. I think you can just talk about moments that are peak moments where you're like, this is a moment where I'm in a best version of myself. Like I took a year off between high school and university. I, I taught in a school in England, actually in Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire. Mm. And, you know, there's a, there's a peak moment story I tell about that where actually one of the kids in a class, because they, they made me teach, which was like deeply irresponsible, but still, um, one of the kids threw a chair through a window and there's glass everywhere and there's chaos and there's kids crying and me kind of regaining control of that classroom and me calming myself down and calming the kids down, you know, that's a peak moment. Even though from the outside it looked like a disaster, it was a defining moment in terms of me as a teacher and as a facilitator and as somebody who has self-control and self-management. So I think it's a really powerful experience to understand your peak moments because your peak moments are telling you something. Mm. And, you know, when I talk about my bigger, bigger purpose in this world, beyond the specifics of the books and the like, the, the language I use is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. So that draws on a number of different things about who I am. First of all, it's a possibility. Infecting a billion people with the possibility virus, part of the thinking behind that is I don't want this to be about me. I want it to be about the ideas I put out into the world. In fact, I want to 
you know, the language I would use today is I want to keep figuring out how to decenter myself. Like, because mm. I am, am a, a wealthy, white, middle-aged, road scholarly, authory, blah, 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 I have all of that status. It's, it's like, quite frankly, I, you know, if I haven't succeeded, I've screwed up somewhere along the line because I've got, I've got all the winds of society <laughs> filling my sails. Mm. Um, so part of my job is to go, how do I get out of the spotlight how do I make that available for other people? Like I don't, I don't need that affirmation or status. So that's this idea of uh, the virus, which is like, how do I get ideas that are good enough to spread? And I don't, I don't need the credit for them. You know, this idea of a billion people speaks to a kind of scale of ambition, which is like, I want to change a lot of lives. I want to contribute in a big way. And mm -hmm. it makes it's the reason I make decisions to write books rather than have a coaching practice because I don't actually have a coaching practice mm. because I can't see my way to touching a billion people if I've got a coaching practice of 20 people at a time. Mm. And the possibility virus is about helping people make braver choices. You know, when you get to that moment, you know, and a crossroad moment or just a small moment in your life and you're like, it, a, know that you're at choice. You know, this is a classic insight from Man's Search for Meaning, which is like, whatever the context, you are at choice about how you act. And then you, when you have that choice, how do you make the bolder, braver, more compassionate, kinder choice? That's the possibility virus for me. And all of that is a distillation of all the stuff <laughs> that, that I've, I've, I've held up the mirror to myself and I go, what do I know to be true about me and, and what I care about? And the billion is interesting. Was that number or that scale of ambition there before you'd ever sold a book, before you'd ever you know, got a view on your TED talk? Or did it come in once you've gone, okay, I can get to a million, could I get to a billion? No, that's, I've, I've had this singular articulation of a, of a, mission for me i i did it whilst i was part of something called the mankind project which is a kind of a men's group place where men get to actually learn how to talk about feelings and hard things and and find companionship um because you know we're uh, you know as a gender we're mostly not that good at it at least mm -hmm. i'm not um and so i did that probably 15 years ago so it would have it certainly it certainly has been around way before i had any noticeable success mm -hmm. and when you think back to your your early years when was the first time that you remember having a scale of ambition in in the impact you wanted to have was that always there in you, it, you yeah it was like i've always wanted to <laughs> like I, my mum tells us, I don't really remember this, but I can believe it to be true. My mum tells a story of, you know, dropping me off at Cub Scouts, aged six. And, um, you know, for, for my first meeting. And by the time she picks me up again, you know, an hour and a half or two hours later, I, I say, you know, so I'm, I'm the sixer of, of the, the, which is the kind of the leader of the small subgroup with, of the pack. And mom was like, what, how did you, how did you become the sixer in your first, in your first, you know, kind of your first visit? 
I said, well, look, I just told the guy who was a sixer that I was better than he was and I should be the sixer. <laughs> and the guy was like, oh, okay. And kind of gave it up. And so, you know, I was the captain of my soccer teams. I was a prefect and a house captain in high school. I, I, I've always kind of run things and, and been in that position. Uh, and my idea of what it means to be a leader has evolved as I've gone on. But, you know, in my last year at high school, where they had this kind of very British house system, you know, the house captain, the house boss, whatever it is, the teacher, was like he, he asked people to apply for the house captainship. And I, I went hard at that. I was like, I'm making a really good case why I should be the house captain because I really want to have that role. So I've always wanted to have that ambition. It's evolved to understand that I don't, I don't need to. I mean, even you mentioned the gala dinner that I, where I won the coaching award in the introduction. That was great. I mean, I felt delighted to, to win that. And also I'd got to a point where I'm like, and I don't need to win this because I've already won. You know, I've already won by the, the success of the book and other bits and pieces. It felt lovely to, to get that trophy and that recognition and feel the love in the room uh, in that moment. But I, I, it's less important for me to have to get the medal these days. And that's what you said when you were in the Rhodes interview process as well. Right. You uh, said you weren't expecting to win. Yeah. I, 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 and as, so with, with so many things, it's like once you – for me anyway, I found that there's uh once I go, look, <laughs> I've already, I, I've, I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing it as best I can. doesn't really matter how successful it is because this is the best thing I can think of to do at the moment. You know, it's fair to say that pretty much with all of my books, I get to a point where I'm like, I move through the, I hope this book's going to be a success to, you know what, this is just a good book and I hope it finds its audience because I think it's going to be helpful for a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And I've done all I can in my end to, to get it out into the world. Now I'm on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And there's something very powerful in that, that people listening will, will hear a sense of focusing on the bit that's in your control, letting go that's somewhat right. of the bit that's outside your control. Yeah. I've had a few people on, on podcasts who are, you know, serious athletes and, and, and sports people. And they often talk about that, actually, that, that shift from, you know, growing up in an environment where it's about the winning to the moment yeah. when actually you're in a flow state is the moment when it's just you and the, and the field and the ball or the, the implement yeah. you're throwing, whatever it is. Um, I had an uh, Olympic javelin thrower on a few weeks ago, and very memorably, she said, my unlock moment was just before I threw the javelin for the most important throw of my life that if I landed the distance, was, I would go to the Olympics. If I didn't land the distance, I wouldn't go to the Olympics. And that was my one shot. And she said, in that moment at the beginning of the runway, I already knew I'd hit the mark. And then oh, she just ran so forward cool. and threw the javelin, right? <laughs> and I was like, that's, you know, that's what it felt like. She said, and when she described it, I was expecting her to describe running up, throwing the javelin, watching it through the sky, seeing it land, knowing she'd mm. hit the mark. She said, I knew I'd made the mark and I did make the mark. And then she moved on with the story. It was the, the actual bit, the thing that is yeah. the most important step in her journey yeah. was incidental because the moment of knowing came before the moment of doing. And, and, and this yeah. is, the, for me, the unlock moment, the, the thing that makes something an unlock moment, which is sometimes, sometimes we'll cross over with these peak moments you describe, but it's a moment of knowing a thing you didn't know before. And right. sometimes people will say, 
you know, when you talk to people about a memorable moment in their life, they will talk about the one where they acted. This was the day I quit my job and I walked out, whatever. And then you say, what was the day that you knew you were going to do that? Ah, three years before, somebody said a right. thing to me. And I didn't say anything at the time, but I knew in my head that at some point I was going to go. And, and, yeah. and what did you know then? I knew I had right. permission to take my own life choices, you know, that kind of thing. That, that's, that's where it is. It's really fascinating. It's really yeah. interesting. Um, and it is interesting to keep, you know, you can keep going back. I mean, when I was 14, I, a Latin teacher, because foolishly I was studying Latin. That was a terrible decision. But, you know, <laughs> Mr. Lennox said, so, Michael, what are you planning on doing after high school? And I'm like, God, I have no idea. <laughs> like, I had no idea. I had not thought that through at all. I'm like, mm -hmm. wait, there's a thing after high school? And so I said to him, I'd like to go to Oxford University because my dad is English and actually grew up in Oxford and, and went to Oxford University. And I was like, well, this is the best I've got. And Mr. Lawrence went, well, you'll have to be a Rhodes Scholar. So I was like, oh, so noted. Don't know what that means. But it also meant that I was like, so my sense of a Rhodes Scholar is you have to kind of, you know, be ambitious and be successful and try stuff. So it started shaping some of my behavior to try and start acting as if I was going to win a Rhodes Scholarship. Um, so you could say that the whole thing, that was the unlock moment. But, you know, you can keep finding these different moments and you know, just like your javelin thrower, it was just that moment was the, was feels like the most important step, but it was just a step. It's all about the steps, you know, some of the steps are glamorous. Some of the steps are less glamorous. Some of them are insightful. Some of them are a grind, but you're, you're it's all about the process. I think. Mm. Now I talked at the beginning about, the challenges a lot of people have been dealing with and, and how they're trying to think about building those relationships in work mm. and in life to, to help them through an uncertain time, a turbulent time. And you've recently brought out this book, How to Work with Almost Anyone. Tell me a little bit about that book and what are the key themes that people yeah. will take from reading it? The, um, the starting insight is that your happiness and your success is really influenced by the quality of your working relationships. And if you think back to project you've worked on when you've worked with people you didn't like and you didn't get on with, you'll remember how miserable that was. And when you think back to projects you worked on when you had good people to work with, you'll remember how fun that was. And it kind of doesn't even matter what the work was. <laughs> it's kind of the, the, the barometer is the quality of the working relationships around you. And for most of us, we cross our fingers and we hope for the best <laughs> with our working relationships. We're like, okay, any luck, these will be good people. Um, they won't be bad people. We'll see how it goes. And you're a little bit flotsam and jetsam on, you know, the, the roll of the dice to mix my metaphors terribly. And so the key insight of this book is what if you could more actively build and shape and, and fine tune the relationship to become, and this is the goal, the BPR, the best possible relationship. The BPR, best possible relationship is important because it's not saying every relationship becomes wonderful. It says, how do you make every relationship, ones that determine your success and your happiness, as good as they can be? And the three qualities, the pillars of a BPR are safe, vital, and repairable. Safe, psychological safety, Amy Edmondson's work, you know, you can be yourself, you can remove fear, 
um, vital, meaning actually have some life, psychological bravery, if you like. Actually, how do you kind of go take risks, push each other, provoke each other, challenge each other, and then repairability, because every relationship gets dinged and damaged at, at some stage. And the ones that continue to thrive are the ones that get some degree of repair as part of that. And so if, if you buy into what I'm saying so far, you might be asking, well, okay, so how do I build a best possible relationship? And the key tool in the book is something called the Keystone Conversation, which is simply a conversation about how you work together before you plunge into the work itself. And so often we plunge into the work itself. I mean, you know, Gary and I did that. You know, when we started this podcast, I didn't ask Gary, and I wish I had, Gary, what makes a really good podcast guest? You know, what are the guests that you love and you're like, God, man, that was an episode that absolutely rocked it. And I didn't tell Gary what I look for as a great podcast host or the ones that bring out my best, the ones that make it feel like a really good use of my time as well. What we did is we got onto the work. Hey, here's how it works. Here's how the technology is going to go. Here's the rough structure of it. Here's what I'm going to ask you. And that is very typical because the work's there and the work's obvious and it's exciting or it's crisis or it's, you know, it's just the thing you want to get on with. And what I'm saying is it can be useful to stop and just have a quick conversation about how do we bring out the best in each other? Because, you know, this podcast has been fantastic, but imagine if Gary and I actually knew what would bring out the best in each other. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know what would be different and how I would be. I'm just making this up. I'm just assuming that this is what Gary's looking for. I don't know. Gary mm. might be, I mean, he's looking like he's happy enough, but he might be just in his head might be going, God, this is a disaster. <laughs> I, wish I, I really wish, <laughs> so, man, this is just, I, I probably won't release this an episode because it's a bit disappointing. I don't know. That's the challenge. And so in the book, I'm like, Keystone Conversation, here are the five questions that, or here are five suggested questions that you can ask to exchange information about each other so that you can then co-create a working relationship that really sings as best it can. And a lot of people say they write the book that they think they need to read. Is there a time when you look back and you think, I wish I'd had this book, or I wish I'd had this insight at that point in my journey, at that point in a working relationship yeah. that I had? Do you think about that? I, that's not quite true for me, mm. um, in that I write the books where I go, here is a tool that has really served me well, and I wish I could make this tool feel simple and accessible for other people. Mm. So I, I got taught this kind of core concept 20 years ago. You know, I got taught by a guy called Peter Block, who's a great writer in this space. Um, he called it social contracting. And he has different structures and different questions, but the idea is the same, which is like, how do we contract you and me? How do we have an exchange of value, you and me, so that we can work well together? And I've been using the tool for, you know, 20 years with, you know, some success, not always, but with, with the people I hire, with the vendors I work with, with the clients I'm trying to work with. And I was, when I was sitting to, down to write the next book, I'm like, what is the th what is the tool that I think would be most useful to try and share next? Because all of my books have a, they're less idea driven, they're more practical solution driven. I'm like, I want to make this book feel useful for you. And I'm very often having a conversation with leaders about the hamster wheel and, and the habits of, I, I like the, the different thinking, I appreciate it, I know I should be doing it. 
but I keep not doing it. I keep just falling back into the way it always yeah. was. How do you help people to step off that hamster wheel and go, we are actually going to not only have this keystone conversation, but it's going to be the beginning of a new dynamic in our relationship rather than just drifting back into old conversation flows? Well, I think it's, you know, in the book, there are three phases. One is you are knowing what the five questions are and coming up with your own answers to them because it's kind of a self-growth, self-development, self-help book in the wrapping of a business book. So the first phase is like know thyself. Um, the second phase is be the person brave enough to initiate a keystone conversation with other people because, you know, there's a degree of unknownness and therefore awkwardness and kind of anxiety because of the unknownness around that. But be the person brave enough to say, why don't we have this chat? And then the third phase of the book is around maintenance, which is like, how do you keep it going? Because like any living thing, it needs to be tended and needs to be looked after. And, you know, whether you want like gardens or, or cars or whatever, there's a way that this needs to be kept up. Hmm. And so it's about checking in often. It's about repairing often. It's about occasionally resetting if it, if it needs that as well. You, you can't just have a keystone conversation and go, well, that's awesome. We're now set for the rest of our lives. We never need to talk about this again. In fact, the kind of the hidden secret of the keystone conversation is that it gives you permission to keep talking about the working relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's actually kind of the, the bigger secret win is it moves it from an untalkable topic to a talkable topic. That's a really interesting insight. My coaching mentor, Claire Petrick, often talks about the idea of the conversation about the work before the conversation that is the work and separating those two. And we talk about that all the time in the context of coaching conversations. But of course, yeah. in all other conversations, that, that can also be really true. And just bringing that to yeah. life is, is, is very helpful. Sometimes the conversation yeah. about the work is a larger part of the total conversation, of course. If people are listening to this conversation who are leaders in work, in life with capital L leaders or small L leaders, yeah, what's one thing you'd really like them to take away from this conversation? I don't know. I, um, I don't want to actually, I don't actually want to tell people what to take away. I'd like to ask them, you know, we've covered a fair bit in this conversation of all the things we talked about, what felt most useful or most valuable for you. And so let me ask you to name that because in you naming it, you get, you have a better chance of remembering it, of it kind of rewiring and firing and kind of creating that neural pathway. So I'm not sure. I mean, I'm hoping some of it was useful for some of you, some of the time, but you know, name the thing that felt most useful for you. And let me ask you, Gary, of all the things we talked about, what felt most useful or most valuable for you? For me, it's back to that, those connections. So the way you answered that question, differently from how most people have answered it, surprise. Um, I think back to what you said about your Rose interview and they said, are you not I sure about the mind. future? And you said, <laughs> yeah. you said yes and no. And actually that, <laughs> that comfort in, in giving an answer that is absolutely authentic to you, that's something that I think has come across really clearly here. And I, and I think it's yeah. this message about being comfortable with being authentically yourself and not feeling mm. as though you, your job is to try and conform into the stereotype and fit into the box. 
you know, whatever kind of box that is. And, 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 you know, we talk a lot about diversity of thinking and yeah. not having to have all the answers. You know, I remember Gary Ridge coming on this podcast and memorably saying, oh, I love Gary. Yeah. Right. You know, when he said, when I became CEO of WD40 company for the first time, one of the thoughts that came into my head was the most powerful statement I know is I don't know, you know, yeah. and, and, and I, and I think that that's come across really, really clearly. Um, and I, and I, I know people listening would have tuned into that as well, but I've, I've really appreciated that. Michael, how can people find out more about you and the work you do? How can they become part of your billion people? <laughs> Thank you. Well, if you if the conversation about the how to work with almost anyone book at the end there piqued your interest, um, bestpossiblerelationship.com gives you information about the book, but also some downloads, a video of me actually role modeling a Keystone conversation. So there's free resources for you there. Um, but in general, um, my, my website is mbs.works. MBS.works. And that's a hub for social media, books, programs, other bits and pieces, my newsletter. So um, at a minimum, sign up for my newsletter. It's pretty good. It's once every two weeks. And I'd love to have you be part of that. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For best-selling author, teacher, coach, speaker, Michael Bungay-Senior, it was accidentally making a joke in his Rhodes Scholarship interview that freed him up to be his authentic self and set him on a path of success that was uniquely his. Discover Michael's latest book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, Five Questions for Building the Best Possible Relationships on Amazon and at all great bookstores. Michael, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation about embracing what makes you unique and distinctive, then check out episode 79 with masterful coach Claire Pedrick, co-author of The Human Behind the Coach. And if you resonated with how Michael wants to unlock the power of better relationships at work, check out episode 35 on The Future-Proof Workplace with Morag Barrett and episode 41 on Servant Leadership with world-leading speaker and coach Gary Rich. Bookmark these episodes for later. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.